things in our lives that we, we choose, things that are inferior, that are less than what you want for us, and yet we, we choose them over and over and over again. And Father, my prayer today is that today and throughout this series that you would help us rethink some of the choices that we make, that you would, you would stir in us and cause us to be people who are unwilling to, to be unwilling to settle. And uh, God, that you'd help us take hold of nothing less than your best. So be with my words today in the meditation of our hearts. Uh, be pleased with what we do here. Be active and involved in what we do here. We pray it in Jesus. Amen. Uh, today I, I want to tell you um, as we start off about three different men, three different writers, authors. Um, two of them you probably know. One of them you probably don't. But the first one I want to tell you about, um, he came on the scene really in, in the public scene um, in 1949. Um, his name was George Orwell. You might know his name. And he wrote a book. And in this book, he forecasted a very bizarre, dystopian future world where all of the world had fallen under a totalitarian regime, a surveillance state, under the watchful eye of an entity called Big Brother. Some of you have read this book, this George Orwell book. Do you know what it is? 1984, yep. So Orwell predicted that the world could be a very different place in 1984. Now again, he was writing in 1949, so 1984 was a long ways away. Looking back on that, of course, you think, 1984, gosh, did anything exciting happen in 1984? But Orwell made a huge impact with his book because the the age that he was writing in was right after World War II, post-World War II, where a big um, concern in people's minds was the issue of tyranny and dictatorship and, and what could happen if all of our freedoms were taken away. And, and so this struck a chord with people. And so as, as the decades went by, people kind of moved toward 1984 anxiously, wondering how much of Orwell's prophecy would come true. Well, well 1984 came, and of course, nothing much happened. And, and the Western world breathed a collective sigh of relief. Orwell's prophecy hadn't come true. Whew, what a relief. Well, in 1985, another guy, um, an NYU professor by the name of Neil Postman, maybe you haven't heard of him, he wrote a book. And in the foreword of his book, he commented on the fact that, that the Western world was celebrating the fact that we had escaped Orwell's tyranny. But he pointed out a, a forgotten book, a book that was written about 17 years before Orwell's book. Back in 1932, it was published. Another book by the name of a guy, uh, published by a guy named um, Aldous Huxley. A book called A Brave New World. How many of you have read that book? Uh, yeah, while the world was all swept up in Orwell's book, 1984, Postman reminded us that, that 17 years before Orwell, Huxley had written a book, a very different kind of book, but also a book predicting a, a dystopian, bizarre, broken future that might exist for us. And in Postman's assessment, while we were waiting for 1984 to come, waiting for Orwell's vision of the future to happen we might have inadvertently stepped into Aldous Huxley's view of the future, a, a future that is, that is no less oppressive, but oppressive in a very different way. So I want to show you what Postman said in the foreword, in the preface of his own book, about the comparison between these two things. He says, contrary to common belief, even among the educated, Huxley and Orwell did not prophesy the same thing. You know, they're they both dystopian writers. They talked about a future of tyranny, but it looked very different. He says, Orwell warns that we will be overcome by an externally imposed oppression. But in Huxley's vision, no big brother is required to deprive people of their autonomy, maturity, and history. As he saw it, people will come to love their oppression, to adore the technologies, 
that undo their capacities to think. And then he goes on and he compares further. Here's what he says. He says, what Orwell feared were those who would ban books. What Huxley feared was that there would be no reason to ban a book, for there would be no one who wanted to read one. Orwell feared those who would deprive us of information. Huxley feared those who would give us so much that we would be reduced to passivity and egoism. Orwell feared that the truth would be concealed from us. Huxley feared that the truth would be drowned in a sea of irrelevance. It would be hidden in plain sight. Orwell feared that, that we would become a captive culture. Huxley feared that we would become a trivial culture. In short, Orwell feared that what we fear will ruin us. Huxley feared that what we desire will ruin us. It's fascinating, isn't it? Two forms of tyranny, one imposed brutally from the outside, the other one chosen. And again, Postman's point is that, that maybe while we were fearing this externally imposed oppression, we, we welcomed a different kind of oppression onto ourselves. That Orwell was wrong, Huxley was right. Now, now Postman's book written in 1985 was a book I, I said most of us probably haven't read. It's a book called Amusing Ourselves to Death. Amusing Ourselves to Death. Now, this book was written in 1985, before Xbox and gaming, before computers were ubiquitous and before the internet, before iPhones and social media, MTV was still a toddler, cable was in its infancy. So if we were amusing ourselves to death back in 1985, what are we doing now? I mean, without a doubt, we are the most entertained culture ever, aren't we? How many channels do you have on your TV? And can you count that high? You're smart people. I don't know if you can. And, and does, my big question is, does that include Netflix and Hulu and all the other things? I mean, we, we've got so much entertainment, so much information at our fingertips. My kids have more entertainment options than anything I could have ever dreamed about as a kid. I remember growing up and doing some long car trips. We never flew anywhere. And on car trips, we never stopped anywhere. My dad drove straight through. And we, of course, had a you know, station wagon. You could lay the seats down. And we'd just kind of lay in the back, no seat belts. And uh, we'd drive straight from, I remember driving straight from Detroit um, all the way down to, to Dallas to see some family. That was a long drive. And I remember one time while we were driving, we were playing board games in the back. I remember having this view of the future that just seemed impossible. I thought, wouldn't it be incredible if someday you could ride along in the car and and on these long car trips where you're so bored out of your mind, what if you could watch TV? (laughs) But in my mind, that seemed impossible. I mean, that seemed as impossible as as if cars could someday fly, you know, themselves. It it just seemed like that that could never happen. There were too many many limitations you'd have to overcome in order to make that into a reality. And and of course, today, that's a reality and so much more. And I look at what my kids have on a short car trip, you know, even two hours, all of the entertainment they have. And here's what astonishes me. They're still bored. <laughs> right? Uh, we're more entertained than ever. But are we laughing as a culture? We're more entertained than ever. But we're still bored. We're more entertained than ever before in history, and yet we're still not happy. And and so then when we come into church on a weekend, what are we expecting? What are we needing? What are we hoping for? Well, frankly, many of us aren't hoping for anything. We're just here because that's what you do. It's, It's religious duty. We're checking a box. We're, we're fulfilling an obligation. I mean, Jesus could show up here and start doing miracles in the aisle, and, and we'd still go home as if nothing had happened because we're not really here expecting anything. 
And then there are others of us who come for other reasons. Some of us come here because we're seeking answers and we've got burning questions and we haven't been able to find answers in other places and so we're hoping to find answers here. And some of us are looking for community. But, but if we're honest, I, I think most of us, we, we don't care much what happens as long as we won't be bored. We expect that the music will be on, that the musicians will be well rehearsed, that the vocalists will be near American Idol quality, that, that the music will be awesome. We expect to be dazzled by a funny and poignant and relevant and heartfelt, well-delivered message, shorter than 28 minutes, please, which isn't going to happen today either, so just you know, throw those hopes out the window. You know, we, we expect that we might laugh, that we might cry a little. What, whatever happens, please just don't make me bored because I won't sit for it. Even in the church, maybe we fall victim to amusing ourselves to death. But I want you to hear me on something. Unlike Postman in his book, I don't believe that entertainment is bad. I think it's good to entertain people. Right? That's what you do when you invite someone into your home. You entertain them. And if you don't, what is the alternative to entertaining someone? Intentionally boring them or, or offending them or disrespecting them? I mean, you would never do that intentionally to anyone who would come into your home. See, it's, it's good to entertain people. It's good to entertain people even in church, especially if we want to communicate to a culture who only knows entertainment as the only source of, of, of uh, culture or intellect or life change. It's, it's so important that we do that. See, I think it's good to entertain people, but I also believe that there's something better than entertainment. I believe that God wants to give us something more than a performance if we just stop settling for it. I believe he could. To get into this today, this, this idea of, of the fact that God wants to, to give us his presence, not performance, I, I want to share with you a story about a guy who, like us, settled for good things in his life. And like a lot of us, he was missing out on something even better. Um, to hear this story, it's a, it's a true story out of the life of Jesus. We've got to go to Mark chapter 12. So you can take a Bible right now and you can, you can look at it. Um, you can go to your smartphone or your device and go to uversion.com and go to uh, the live event section, look up STJSTL, and you can find not only um, our scripture, but you can find a whole menu board where you can submit prayer requests and give online and uh, all kinds of things. Or you can just look up here if that's easier for you. Mark chapter 12, again, an account with a guy who's approaching Jesus. So one of the teachers of the law, that's a guy, he came and he heard them debating. He heard who debating? Well, uh, the them here is Jesus debating with some guys called the Sadducees. Now, you don't have to know a lot about the Sadducees. They were a religious sect of their day. And uh, right before this, they came to Jesus with a bunch of questions trying to trap him, trying to trip him up, trying to get him to misspeak and to prove himself to be a false or a phony. And so they asked these really tough questions that no one could think of a logical answer for. But Jesus, of course, had great answers for all of their questions. And so this other guy, this teacher of the law, this, this guy who is a part of a group of people who usually aren't much of a fan of Jesus, um, he comes and he hears this, and he, and he hears that Jesus is pretty sharp. So he came and he heard them debating, noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer. He asked him, he asked Jesus, of all of the commandments, which is the most important so, so this guy comes to Jesus with a question. He comes seeking an answer to a question he has. He is a teacher of the law. And in the Old Testament, there are 613 commandments. So if you're a teacher of the law, that's a lot to remember. You know, I sometimes have a hard time remembering the, the name of my three kids just in a moment. So 613 commandments, that's a lot for you to remember if this is your job. On top of that, 
uh, rabbis and teachers have added thousands of other commands on top of biblical commands, kind of, you know, barriers to make sure that you keep the commands, so they added other commands on top of them. So there are thousands of commands. So, so this teacher of the law, who may be feeling a little frustrated about all of this, he goes up to Jesus and he says, okay, if all of these commands, which of them is the best? So, so he's seeking an answer to his question, and let's see what Jesus' answer is. Jesus says the most important one is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So he quotes to him the Shema. It's this, uh, this phrase, this refrain that Hebrew people would speak back and forth. It's from Deuteronomy. Um, and, uh, and then he goes on. He says, so um, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. So love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And the second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. So interestingly, Jesus answers, the greatest commandment is love. Of all the 613 commandments, telling you when to wash your hands and how to sacrifice and, and, and what to do with your... The most important thing, Jesus says, is to love. To love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. To love your neighbor as yourself. There are no commandments greater than these. So he gives the answer, and, and look, at the, uh, look at the reaction. Well said, teacher, the, uh, the other teacher, the, the religious teacher replied. You are right in saying that God is one and there is no other but him. To love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. This is more important than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices. So I love this. This teacher of the law who's coming to Jesus for answer now grades Jesus' answer. He's like, well done. Good job. A plus, Jesus. You answered that question really well. It's maybe a little bit condescending. And I want you to see what Jesus' reaction is to all of this. When Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, because... Jesus is the teacher. He's the judge. He's the one who gives the grades. He said to him, you know what? You are not far from the kingdom of God. And from then on, no one dared ask him, ask him any more questions. Now, I wonder when I read this, I wonder, do they did not dare to ask him any more questions because he was so good at answering questions? Or did they not ask him any more questions because he insulted the guy. You know that phrase, you are not far from the kingdom of God? I, I frankly don't know what to make of that. I always used to think that might be a compliment of the guy, like, hey, you're really close. But lately I've been thinking, is really close good enough? If it was, we wouldn't, we wouldn't need this series, right? If, if just getting really close to the mark was good enough, we wouldn't need to talk about this, not that. See, I wonder if, if this is actually an insult to this religious teacher, or at least a challenge. And, and maybe in saying this, hey, you are not far from the kingdom of God. Maybe Jesus is saying, hey, if you're coming to me for answers, that's good. But you're actually missing out on something better if that's all you're seeking. Well, what is it that this guy is missing out on? I mean, Jesus is the guy who has answers. Shouldn't you seek him if, if you need an answer in your life? I, it certainly seems to make sense. So what's he missing? He's missing Jesus. See, he comes to Jesus looking for an answer to a question. But he's missing Jesus himself. And, and I think that's what a lot of us miss out on. Weekend after weekend. We come here maybe for the show. We come here for answers. We come here for hope. We come here for community. We come here out of duty. And, and all of that can be good. 
See, I don't want to shame you on any of those things. If that's the reason you come, that's a great place to start. But it just may be if if that's the only reason you're coming and if that's all you're seeking, you're missing the mark. You're not far from the kingdom of God, which means that that it's good, but you're not quite on target yet. There's something more for you. See, I think so many of us, week after week, we're missing one of the best things that God wants to give us. And that is himself. Maybe, maybe you noticed, maybe you didn't notice that in this whole uh, great commandment talk and all the talk about love your neighbor as yourself and love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, underlying all of that, there, there's this great invitation that God is extending to people. See, most of us, I think, hear that as a command. We hear it as a burden or as an expectation when God says, or when Jesus says, hey, you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. We hear that as a command. We hear that as a duty, as an expectation. But see, see, I think underlying all of that is an invitation. Jesus is communicating something. And what he's communicating is that God in heaven, the God of the universe, a God who is perfect and holy and just, a God who is is so far above you in every way that, that he already loves you. And what he's waiting for is he's waiting for you to love him back. See, there's no real burden or or commandment or expectation here. I think it's more of a statement of promise that, that God has already extended his love to you. And if you would just love him back, it would change your life. It's not that you have to approach God first and then he'll love you. No, no, no. He already loves you. See, this is, in my mind, an invitation, not even a command It's an invitation to be loved and to live in the love of God. Now, we talk a lot about that in the church. I want to go a little deeper, and I want to talk about what it means that God loves us and and what it means that we're invited to love him back, because I think this is the key to abundance. And to do that, I want to share with you um, uh, a—it's a book, it's a a system called the Five Love Languages. Have you heard of it? Five Love Languages? Raise your hand if you've heard of it. Yeah, it's a, it's a really neat book. There's in, there are inventories online that talk about it. The basic premise is that there are five different ways that we as people show love and receive love. Um, there is uh, words of affirmation. You know, we speak kind words to each other. So um, there, there, there's that. There's acts of service that we show love to people by serving them. Uh, we show love to people by receiving gifts. So this is, this is really the shallow love language right here. For all you materialistic people, everyone knows words of affirmation is really where it's at. Um, uh, no, receiving gifts, that, that's a great way to show love to people. Physical touch, that's another way to show love to people. Quality time, that's a way to show love to people. And uh, w- what this does for a lot of people is this clarifies a great misunderstanding in relationships. So whether you're dating someone, whether you're married to someone, whether it's a brother-sister thing or a friend thing, um, often in life we, we show love in the way that we want to receive love. And so we're trying to love people in the way that we want to be loved. And so we're heaping on them words of affirmation. And, and they're looking at us just going like, I, I don't get it. I don't feel like you love me. Because their love language is, you know, physical touch or something. And so for a lot of people, what this does in marriage or in relationships is this turns a light on. And they go, oh, you know, my, my spouse, my significant other, they want to be shown love in a different way than I'm giving it. And so it clarifies a lot of things. But here's why I bring this up today. I mean, you can look into this on your own for your relationships. The reason I bring this up for you today is I just want to point out that if God is love, if he's the author of love, 
If he is love personified, if, if he is the source of all love, that means he doesn't love in any one of these ways. That means that God wants to love us in all of these ways. And, and of course, sure, he, he'd love it if we'd love him back in all of these ways, but I'm not talking about that today. Right now I'm talking about how God loves us. See, God wants to love you in each and every one of these ways. Whether it's your love language or not, he wants to give it to you. And settling for anything less than all five of these, you're settling for less than the full abundant love of God in your life. See, so God wants to give you words of affirmation. He wants to speak truth about what he believes and sees when he looks at you. And, and the scripture contains those words that, that even though you're a sinner, even though you're broken, even though you make mistakes, even though people in your life have spoken all kinds of words against you, God speaks a different word over you through the blood of Jesus. Those words are important. You should pay attention to those words. Because it's how God shows his love to you. God wants to serve you. He wants to provide for you. You know, he wants to take care of you and your daily needs. He wants to meet you in your needs. And if you're mindful of those things, you'll, you'll see that God really does love you in that way. He provides your daily bread as we pray in the Lord's Prayer. Uh, God wants to give you gifts. He does. Not just the basics of life. God sometimes wants to drop extravagant things into your life. And I'm not talking about possessions only. Sometimes that may be the case. But, but sometimes God wants to drop a person into your life who, who fills your life to overflowing, that is such a gift to you that you feel like you're overflowing. Or sometimes God wants to give you an experience, a moment of, of just abundance. So it, it's more than just serving your basic needs. God wants to give you very real gifts. God wants to, to, to be physically active in your life. He, he wants to touch you. And, uh, you know, uh, Pastor Howard said a week or so ago um, that, that he couldn't be a part of a church even though there are some great churches, he could not be a part of a church where, um, where they didn't celebrate regularly the Lord's Supper, communion. And I agree with him because I think if you're a part of that kind of church, and I'm not bashing those churches, I just think you're missing out on, on something that God does, that, that in the Lord's Supper, it's not just a representation. It's not just a reminder of something that Jesus did in the past. But, but it's actually a physical touch of God where God comes and gives us his true presence and he loves us, and, 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 and through earthly means, he gives us himself. And he places his hand on us, and he comes to dwell within us, and it's, and it's so intimate, it's so powerful, and, and even God, who is unseen, and our Father in heaven, finds ways to show love to us physically. And then here's this last one, quality time. God wants to spend quality time with you. It can be powerful in your life if you let him. And I just want to pause here for a second, and I want to ask you, especially related to this last one, quality time, is that how you see what we do here on Sunday mornings? Do you, do you see this as an opportunity to spend time, to share space with a God who loves you, and simply to, to just commune and to be here in his presence. See, I think for a lot of us, we come here and we talk about God and we sing about God. And, and that's kind of what we do here. But we never really engage God face to face. We, we talk about him as if he's someone else sitting in another room. But we don't ever have moments or we don't have enough moments where, where we look him in the eye and, and we engage him face to face. 
See, uh, Steve Howard also says that there's no bad reason to come to Jesus, and, and I agree with him. I, I think no matter why, whatever reason we come to God, it's, it's good. But I think if we miss his presence, if we miss this quality time that he wants to spend with us, if, if we go through life having all four of these other things, that's good. But if we're missing this piece, if, if we're missing this, th- then it's not the best If we have four out of five, we're settling. And and frankly, you don't look to me like people who are used to settling in life. So why do you settle here? Why do you let God love you in so many different ways, but you fail to let God love you by spending time with you, by sharing space with you? Well, I'll tell you why. I think for starters, the reason that we don't engage God's presence is because it's scary. You know, it scares us. In the Bible, so many people, um, when, they're, uh, when they're in the Old Testament especially, when they're uh, thinking about engaging God, when they, they, they think about seeing God face to face, they're terrified by this idea. They're terrified that if they see God, they're going to die. They're going to fall over dead if they look into the face of God. And, and yet God appears to a lot of different people, and uh, none of them die in that way. But, but I think a lot of us are, are afraid of his presence. We're, we're, we're this idea that we would look God face to face because he's good and we're not... We're afraid of what that would mean for us. And even if we're not, you know, as superstitious as to believe that we'd fall over dead, we have to believe that a God who is so holy and good would look at us and immediately he'd start into us about all the things that are wrong with us in our lives. See, engaging God's presence is scary. And so we don't do it. I think we don't engage God's presence because it it's, sounds boring to us. And I think that's because modern-day Christianity has become very boring. Right? I mean, if, if you think about a Christian, and you think about just kind of the, the archetype of a Christian, man, they're the most boring people on the planet. That's what people think about us, right? That, that we're boring, that we're goody-two-shoes, and we live these safe lives and these small lives, and, and, and there's nothing exciting that happens. Where did this idea begin to take hold? How did this become reality? Because it certainly doesn't gel with God in the Bible. It doesn't gel with Jesus in the Gospels. I mean, when you look at Jesus in the Gospels, I mean, Jesus is an exciting guy to be around. There's all kinds of stuff happening around Jesus. He's making people mad. He's, he's helping outcasts. He's healing people. He's changing people's lives. There's controversy and joy and celebration and anger swirling around Jesus all the time. It's anything but boring. And yet for us, we have this idea that, that man, being in God's presence, ugh, that sounds so boring. We've got a mistaken idea about that, and yet it affects, it affects all of this. I think a lot of us, we don't engage God's presence because we don't know how. I mean, you read all the articles that come out all the time that talk about the number of minutes a family spends in quality time with each other every day. Those numbers are scary. And more than the numbers, you know what it's like to go to bed at the end of the uh, day. And, and I certainly have these moments. I, I lay down and, and I think, I just tucked my whole family in. I'm now going to bed. And, and I think most of the night, I, I spent my night distracted. You know, chained to my, my screen, to my device, to the technologies that enslave us, as, uh, as Aldous Huxley talked about. Uh, I, I spent time, you know, chained to work or chained to entertainment or, or reading about articles that fascinate me, you know, buried in all of the information. I'm a learner. I love to learn things, and, and that can be a trap for me that I can just spend my whole night learning. And, and in the meantime, I've got flesh and blood and some of, the, some of my favorite people in the world all around me, and I'm failing to interact with them. 
right? I mean, you feel that in life sometimes, whether it's, whether it's a book or a TV or your device or whatever it is, that it's so hard to spend quality time with people, even people that you really love, even people who are in the same room. And, and if this is hard for us to do with flesh and blood, how much more difficult is it for us to do this with a God who is unseen? This is difficult stuff. I think a reason that a lot of us settle for God loving us in all kinds of ways, but, but not getting the presence or the quality time thing, settling for the performance and for the show and for the teaching, but not really soaking in his presence, is because we, we just don't get it. We don't know how. What does it look like to spend time with a God who is not sitting tangibly in the room? When I can't even do this with my spouse, how do I do that with God? Now, I don't claim to be an expert in any of this. But uh, if that last one is, is really your deal, you're just going, I don't, I don't even know what it means to spend quality time with God. I want to share with you some wisdom from uh, people who, who figured this out and who lived it much better than I did. Uh, one of the guys was named Brother Lawrence, and uh, he wrote a book uh, called The Practice of the Presence of God. And, um, and, and it's all about how he lived his life with God as his companion, as his partner. And, and, and he talked about what that meant. For him, And so I've got some wisdom from him and from some other sources that just might be able to get you started. And I don't think this is going to do it because this is a lifetime practice, spending quality time with God. But maybe this will get you started with how um, you can begin to spend quality time with God. So first thing, um, and just five things real quick, you want to take notes on these. Begin each day conscience, conscious of God. So when you wake up in the morning, what's the first thought on your mind? Is it, what is the weather today? What is my schedule today? Oh, crud, I have to get up. You know, I don't know what your, your thought is. But, but what if you begin each day just conscious of God, acknowledging that God is there with you, that he is present with you in your room, that he has guarded over you that night and given you safety? What if you started each day with a prayer in your heart, a prayer of thanks, a prayer of praise for who God is, that he is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and he has been with you? I think that would begin to change your perspective. You'd no longer going through the, go through the day imagining that you're alone. You, you wouldn't do that anymore. And to this, I could also add, end each day conscious of God. One, one of my favorite moments of the day is when I tuck my kids into bed at night and we spend some quality time. That's when we do get it. And uh, every night, almost every night, I pray over my kids and, and I pray um, a couple of things. I pray that God would fill our house with his presence, that he would dwell there with us. That's what I pray. And I pray that God would also fill um, those kids with his Holy Spirit, that he would dwell within them. What if every morning and every night, we had this consciousness of God that, that he's not sitting far off in the heavens, that he is truly Emmanuel, he is God with us, he is still with us by his spirit, that he is present with us, that we are never alone. Again, it may sound scary to some of you, but it can be really good. A second thing, read God's word. Well, that sounds like an obvious thing to say. Why is that important for quality time with God? Because this is God's voice into your life. And uh, ideally, if you read God's word in the morning, and you don't have to, but if you read God's word in the morning, here's what you'll find, that even as you meditate on a very short piece of scripture, what, what you'll find is, is that throughout the day, God will weave a thread throughout your day where those words often come back to you. And you'll start to get the sense that God is speaking to you through your day as, as that scripture that you read in the morning is applied to your life or, or it surfaces again in a conversation. You'll start to get this idea that, that God is present, and guess what? That's a good idea because he is. So you're reading God's word is, is letting God have a voice into your life. And it's so important. And, and you, we talk about spending 15 here. 
Um, that's part of our 1-1-15-6 model. Four things you can do that will help you move along on your life journey. We say spend 15 minutes a day in a faith-building discipline. So if you spent just 15 minutes a day reading a short scripture um, and doing the next thing, praying uh, with God, it would open up a whole new path of conversation where you realize that, that God is speaking to you all day long, that he's there with you, spending time with you. Uh, third thing is pray. Not just at formal times, that's good, praying at meals or at bedtime or in the morning or at other times. Um, but, but this is just, you know, informal prayer. I know some of you talk to yourselves, right? Some of you will rat out each other in families that you talk to yourself. You should stop doing that because that's weird. Talking to yourself is weird. Instead, if you want to talk to someone, talk to God. Seriously, I mean, in the same way that you talk to yourself, just, just speak to God as you go through your day. Speak to him as if he's there with you in the room because, again, he is and the more you practice that reality, the more you act like he's there with you, the more you'll realize that he is. Four, uh, this is a little insider. Practice the genius of gratitude. If you don't know what this means, go back and listen to our series, Genius of Gratitude, or watch it. Um, it was in November of last year, a life-changing four-week series. Uh, but, but by this, I just mean, you know, practice gratitude in your life. If you look at life through what you lack, what you're missing, what's been deprived of you. If, if you see life through that filter, you're not going to have a lot of joy. You're not going to be very thankful. But if instead you're constantly looking for the things that are blessings in your life, here's what you'll find is that not only will you be happier or more filled with joy and more successful and more optimistic and so on, but you'll start to acknowledge God more. You'll start to realize that all of the good things in your life, those aren't just of your making, they aren't an accident, that God is doing something in your life, that he's loving you, that he's with you throughout the day. And so as you express gratitude to God throughout the day, it brings a closeness and intimacy. It's powerful. And then last, number five, learn to be quiet. This one's tough. Uh, by being quiet, I don't necessarily mean that the, everything has to be turned off, but I do mean being still, being focused, um, getting rid of distractions that bother us. See, we're so afraid of quiet. We distract ourselves all the time. I mean, even in church, you know, those quiet moments, do those freak you out or, or do you lean into those and you just go, this is time, this is space for me to engage God, for God to engage me. Those moments in the, in the songs where it's kind of in between verses and you don't know what to do with yourself, you're just kind of waiting. Like, do you love those moments because it's a time for you to lean in and, and receive what God is, is, is doing for you and just to soak up his presence? Or do you fear those moments? It's like, hurry up, you know, start the next verse, move the song forward. How do you see that stuff? See, I think we have a really hard time with quiet. And the Bible says over and over again that the way God speaks is, is, is he speaks in a quiet voice. He's not into shouting down other voices. He's not into screaming louder than the distractions in your life. And so just learning to be quiet not only lets you hear God, but I think it really lets you experience the presence of God, to practice the presence of God in your life. See, it's... It's true that just like in life, entertainment, it can't satisfy us, it can't fulfill us, it can distract us, but ultimately we want something more than distraction. And the same is true with God. If we're missing the chance to dwell with God, we can have a lot of good things, but we're ultimately missing one of the best things. See, it's, it's even more interesting to me that 
As the Bible describes life after death, the number one descriptor of what that existence will be like is not what it looks like. We don't learn a lot about what it looks like. We don't learn a lot about who will be there with us. Uh, The main description that we get is that we will be present with God. That he will be present with us. That Jesus, the lamb who was slain, will be there. And we will be next to him and we will see him face to face and then we will know fully even as we're fully known. It's, It's his promise of presence. Now, for some of you, that scares you, and you don't want to go to heaven because that sounds boring. And I think if that scares you, it's just because you haven't practiced it enough to know how good it can be, that it is truly one of the best things that God wants to give us. So here's what I want to do as we close. In a moment, our musicians are going to come out, and we're going to sing an awesome song. But before that, I want to give you space. I want to give you time just to breathe, to be quiet. And being quiet doesn't mean that there's no music or there's no noise in the room. There'll be noise in the room. What I mean is is quiet yourself. Put away distractions in your mind. Just take this time to to soak up God's presence because the Bible says where two or more are gathered, he's there, he's here. We don't want to just talk about him. We want to be with him. And so here's some time and some space to be quiet and to practice the presence of God to just enjoy being with him. Enjoy it.